So I love to read. And uh, this week, um, I was reading a a short story uh, by Flannery O'Connor. And what struck me in this story, which appropriately enough was titled Revelation, was, was that when God's grace intervenes in our lives, it can happen in uh, dramatic, unexpected, and even violent ways. So as I, I was reading this, this short story, and it, it's the story of this... Uh, really this racist, judgmental, self-righteous old woman, and her name is Mrs. Turpin in the story. And, and what she likes to do is she just likes to kind of size up everyone else in, in the city, the little small town where she lives. And she says, well, you know, I, I think I have a little more money than them. I think my family is kind of more attractive than theirs is. And, oh, you know, she kind of ranks people. She's always judging everyone around her, and she prides herself on her charity and her good reputation with all of her friends at church, but inside, you can tell that her heart is just rotten. And then while this woman, this judgmental but church-going woman, is uh, sitting in a waiting room, a doctor's waiting room, because her husband got kicked in the leg by their horse, she's sitting in the waiting room, she's just kind of sizing everyone up around her and, and judging them. And she sees this little girl, this, this, this little uh, college girl. She's in her first year of college. And she, she kind of judges her because she, she's got acne all over her face. And she goes, oh, you know, that girl, she's, she's not beautiful like I am. And for whatever reason, this little girl gets up right in the middle of her silently judging everyone in the room. And the little girl picks up the textbook she's reading, throws it at the old woman's face and hits her right in the eye. And so the woman falls down in the middle of the waiting room, and then this little college girl, she jumps on top of her, she starts strangling the old woman. And then listen, this little girl says the most surprising, striking thing to this woman. It's really appalling, but I I want want you to hear it. This is what she says. This is what the the writer, Flannery O'Connor, has this little girl say to this old woman. She says, you go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. That's what she says to this woman as she's sitting on the floor. And then, you know, the doctors pull, pull this girl off. off and, and, I mean, this is, this is a, a strong words. I mean, that's a strange encounter, right? And, but these hard words, this violent encounter with this girl, they trouble the old woman. And they trouble her so much that it, it eventually brings her back to God. It shakes her out of her delusion. And it begins to heal her. And I, and I think this is the most wonderful part, really. This is the thing that, that just so struck me when I read this story. Um, this little girl is a symbol of God's kindness to us. And you can tell because her name in the story, the little girl who throws the book at her face and starts choking the old woman and calls her names, her name is Mary Grace. And what Flannery O'Connor is saying in this story is that grace breaks into this world in strange, sometimes violent, sometimes unexpected ways. And this idea of God's grace being strong, unexpected, violent, it's not strange if you've ever had God deal with you personally before. Or if you've read the Bible and you've you've seen how God has worked and dealt with his church throughout church history. 
Now, what, what this is saying is that however God enters your life, whatever means he uses to move you towards salvation, it is an act of pure, undeserved grace. God gets to decide how his kindness prevents, presents itself to us. And sometimes God's grace, his condescending, undeserved attention and affection towards his people, his grace can be fierce, forceful, and efficient like a textbook to the face. Now, our brothers and sisters at the church in Sardis learned this lesson pretty quickly when these words were first read to them as they met one Sunday. Now, if this church had a say in the matter, I bet they might have asked God to communicate in in, in maybe a, a gentler way, maybe a less forceful way. And no doubt this letter, which I think is the most severely critical of all the letters given to the seven churches, it came to the church at Sardis and it landed like a textbook in the face. It was dramatic, weighty, and I hope effective. And what I want us to see this morning is that Christ's words to this church, as hard as they may be, they're ultimately a divine act of grace, a gracious, generous display of fatherly discipline, of tough love. And if we would just have ears to hear it, I think our Lord is saying to the church at Sardis and to us here this morning that it's not too late to turn to him, and maybe for the first time ever, to truly live and discover what it means to be faithful to Christ. And as we work through this text, we're going to look at three parts of Christ's message to the church. They all start with the letter R. The first is he gives a rebuke. Next, Christ gives the remedy. And then finally, Christ gives them an offer of reward. So first, we'll look at the rebuke. It begins in verse 1. This is what Christ says. These are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. This is the almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing son of God. This is his message to you. Can you just imagine, after reading the description of him who who gives this message, how, how those words must have thundered in John's ears. This person has feet like bronze. He's got eyes like fire. And... This is what he says. The Lord says, I know your works. I know your deeds. You have a reputation. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wow. Now, by the end of the first century, this this town, this city, Sardis, I mean, it it really was. It was dead. It was a a washed up, a has-been city. It was a relic. In ancient times, the city had been a place of wealth and power. Have you ever heard that, that, that saying, that guy's as rich as Croesus? Like, hey, that guy with ten helicopters. Man, that guy's rich as Croesus. So King Croesus, the guy that that saying's from, uh, King Croesus was the king in Sardis. So it was the center of wealth and power. And you know the legend of King Midas? King Midas lived in Sardis. And so the, the, the way the legend goes is that King Midas washed the gold off his hands in this river. And there really was gold in the river at Sardis. So it was kind of this boom town, this mining town. And as you know, if you've ever been to any ghost towns out west, all the boom towns eventually go bust. And that's what happened here in Sardis. And the church of Sardis, like the city, was also apparently alive in name only. And even worse, as we see, they are totally blind. They're totally deluded about their deadness. 
Now, in the first part of this really frank and almost harsh assessment, the Lord reminds us, lest we forget, that he knows and sees every detail of our lives. Our God is not some absentee landlord. He's intimately aware of the actions, thoughts, and motivations of all of his creatures. And God sees what no one else does. No one around them seems to see this. They don't even see this. But God knows that this church, which from the outside looks like it's just rock solid, solid oak, right? But then you look and right past the surface, there's just a thin veneer. There's just a facade of faithfulness. That's all there is. It's, it, it, it's thin, paper thin. Jesus says, you have a reputation of being alive. And literally this word means, word means you have the name of being alive. Everyone says you're the church of life. If you ask people in town, hey, what's a good church? What's a lively church? They'd go, oh, the church at Sardis. That's like the church of life down there. Man, they're really lively. And Christ says, you're not the church of life. You're the church of death. Which, if that isn't the name of a heavy metal band already, it really should be. Church of death would be a great band name. And so Jesus says, you're the church of death. And I can see it. We see this truth all throughout the whole Bible. Appearances matter very little to our God. What he is most concerned with in his people is what's on the inside. God's looking at our hearts. And in this church, when he looks inside their hearts, he sees deadness. He sees a lack of vitality, a complete unresponsiveness to the things of God and his spirit. Now, our flesh, our, our, our human bodies become dead. The, the word is necrotic. What a great word. Flesh becomes necrotic when there's no blood pumping to it anymore. When there's no oxygen, there's no nutrients, there's nothing feeding it and helping it grow. It withers and it dies. The Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea because there's not enough fresh, new water pumping into it to compensate for all the old dead water that's evaporating out of it. So it's slowly dying and sinking. And just like a cell phone battery. Has this ever happened to you where you try to plug your phone in and no matter how you plug it in, the battery's dead. It's not going to take any charge. It doesn't matter how long you plug in. It's just not going to stay charged. That's what this church is like. They're completely dead, powerless, drained of all life-giving spiritual power. So I think, I, I think just right off the bat, we need to ask ourselves, how did this happen? Well, the text doesn't really tell us. It does seem to indicate that just like the church in Ephesus, who had let their love for God grow cold, Sardis did at some point have a vibrant ministry. But somehow they drifted away. And, and in our walk with God, really, most of us tend to drift away from God in two directions. Martin Luther said famously that uh, a Christian trying to walk with God is like a drunk man trying to ride on a horse. He always falls off on one end, and then he gets back up, and he goes, I'm not going to fall on that end. And he falls down on the other side. So that's typically what happens. Some of us, we fall off on one side. And this is the side of, um, of, of starting to play God by following our own rules for living rather than submitting to God's commands. This is falling off on the side of, of making rules for ourselves, deciding what, what we want to do for ourselves, ignoring God's commands. And these types of people who fall off on this side love to focus on Christian freedom without giving much thought to Christian faithfulness. Now, the other mistake, the other side that we can fall off on is, is that we can play God by trying to be our own savior. 
that we work so hard at being obedient that we think, well, we, in the end, we kind of saved ourselves, didn't we? Isn't God looking at how, how hard I've worked? But from the language here, I don't think that this church's problem is self-righteousness. I don't think they're falling off on that side. I think the deadness that is described here is kind of like the deadness that the Apostle Paul describes in 1 Timothy 5, 6, where he says, someone who is self-indulgent, someone who's self-indulgent, they're dead even while they still live. And I think for us, if we're honest, in our day and age, in the city that we live in, self-indulgence is a much stronger and subtler temptation. Can't you see how a little compromise here and there might seem so attractive? We say, well, God wants me to be happy, doesn't he? Well, he won't mind if I just indulge in this until we no longer know when we're grieving God. Living for sensuality makes us lose all sensitivity to God until one day when the spirit is grieved so much and so often that when this church at Sardis gathers for worship, the Spirit decides he doesn't want to attend church that day. Now, God has done this before. If you read in Ezekiel 8 through 10, God talks to Ezekiel and he says, Son of man, Ezekiel, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his own room of pictures? They say the Lord doesn't see us, but God sees. And God says he's sick. Of what he sees. And so finally in chapter 10, Ezekiel sees this vision of God's glory, his beautiful, perfect, holy, weighty presence just picking up and moving shop out of the temple. God says, I'm done with you. But of course, the church just keeps meeting, even though God has long since stopped attending their worship. And at this point, the church is really just a social club, they're just playing church. So how could we tell if the Holy Spirit decided not to show up here one day? What would that look like? Well, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, teaches us how to follow God. So maybe they had a lack of conviction of their own sin. If you ask them how you can pray for them, they're always going to give you prayer requests about other people, or prayer requests about Christians on the other side of the world, or this is my favorite one, traveling mercies. Oh, just traveling, I mean, getting in the car, traveling mercies, or, or maybe, you know, the, the friend's dog prayer, or, you know, my, friend, my friend's brother's uncle is sick, but there's never any mention of a need in your own heart. There's never an ask, you know, for help or strength or patience to deal with the temptation that you're actually battling with. You're just totally unaware of what's going on inside here. Maybe it's that. You know, also, you see in the book of Acts, you know, that God's spirit is, is moving people outside the doors of the church. That's what God's spirit does, too. So, so maybe here they're just super concerned about everything that goes on inside the church. and They have no concern about anyone outside the doors. Now, it, it, it's remarkable, actually, that, that God doesn't mention any kind of persecution, any kind of jailing that this church is dealing with. And I think the reason that they're not having any trouble with those outside the church is they don't ever really interact with anyone outside the church. Maybe the reason there's no friction is because there's no contact. So, so maybe that's it. But I think maybe there is just a, a habitual decline of passion for God and his word until they just looked normal to everyone outside. 
as one commentator put it, maybe when outsiders looked in at the prayers and the preaching and the fellowship of this church, they saw something that looked neither dangerous nor desirable nor different. And we have to stop and ask ourselves, what if you were spiritually dead? How would you know? Are there people close enough to you, people who love you enough to ask you, hard questions, maybe to say something to you. What if you were dead to God's spirit because you were never alive in the first place? Now, it seems like the church in Sardis, for at least for a while now, has really just been on cruise control. They said, we got it. We know what direction we're going. We don't need to look out. We're just going to press cruise and enjoy the ride. And for us in Wilmington, North Carolina, which is the city that people go to get on cruise control. I mean, this is where people move when all they want to do is hang out, get sun, play golf, and relax. You owe it to yourself. Go to the beach. And if we don't look any different from the rest of this culture, I mean, what? if what we say, what we do, how we eat, how we drink, what we spend our money on, what we talk about... If it doesn't look any different, I mean, doesn't God, God want more than that for his special people, for his church? So Jesus gives this rebuke, and the rebuke is sharp, and it's to the point. It's harsh. Probably it's unexpected. And we can speculate about what led them to this place, whether it was self-righteousness or self-indulgence. But it really doesn't matter. We see ourselves in them, don't we? Their sickness is the same as ours. And even though it might show itself in different ways, we have the same poison in our own hearts. The Bible says that their problem in ours is simply that we are natural-born sinners. And we persist in sin because we're experts at it. And unless Christ deals graciously with us, our sentence will be the same as theirs. Now, since we all alike share the same sickness, we can all look to the same cure. Amen. Having given them the rebuke, Christ prescribes a remedy for spiritual death. And the remedy is found through believing the gospel, turning from sin, and walking with God in obedience. So the first part of the remedy, you look here in verse 2. Here's what it is. He says, this is the Sam translation, Wake up! Wake up! He's saying, be watchful, be attentive, look out! Look around. You're asleep at the wheel. You don't even see you're about to crash. Let me ask you, are you looking out? Are you looking out? Are you being watchful for your own soul? Can you see the state of your own heart? Are you aware of all the temptations that war against it? You know, older Christians used to come to each other and and they'd say something like this. They'd say, brother, sister, how is it with your soul? That's why we have that song, It Is Well With My Soul. So, brother, sister, how is it with your soul? If someone asked you that, what would you say? Do you need something? What does your soul lack? Do you need courage, forgiveness, rest, patience? Does your soul need purity? To see the needs of our own soul, we first have to open up our eyes and pay attention. So that's the first step. Look out. Wake up. Next, the Lord exhorts them and exhorts us. Now that you're awake, now that I've got your attention, strengthen what remains. And here we just need to stop for a moment and praise God. Because this is a sliver of hope, isn't it? There's something good that remains. 
There's something worth strengthening. There's, there's a little tiny dust mite of conviction. There's a, there, there's a dying ember of passion for the things of God. And even if the fire in this church is dying out, amid all the smoke, there's still this one little spark. And God, in his mercy to them and to us, will not let that little spark go out. There's a Puritan preacher named Richard Sibbs, and he wrote a whole book about this idea, about God looking at the littlest bit of grace and treasuring it and fanning it into flame. It's, it's a beautiful book. It's called The Bruised Reed. And if you just read the table of contents in this book, it'll make you weep. It's that beautiful. So this is what he says in the book. He says, someone who has the least measure of God's spirit is still within the compass of God's eternal favor. Favor. If you have the least measure of God's spirit, you're still within the bounds of his eternal favor. Though you might not be a shining light, you're still a smoking wick. And Christ's tender care for you will not permit him to snuff you out. Amen. Christ is saying, church, that little memory you have of when you used to be faithful to me, lean into that. Let's fan that into flame again. Maybe when you sin, church, you're sorry that you're grieving God. That's good. Well, we can work with that. Hey, church, maybe when you sin, you're not sorry that you're grieving God, but you're at least sorry that you're not sorry. Okay, we can work with that too. Let's, let's lean into that. Can you see how gracious and patient Jesus is being with this church? How long, how long do you think he's watched them run through their spiritual inheritance? And now he's saying, look around. There's still a few pennies on the floor. There's something left over. Let's, let's build with that. Let's go back to work. And then Christ says something that puzzled me when I first read it. This is what he says in verse 2. He says, wake up, strengthen what remains, because I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Uh, now, this is kind of strange uh, because if you've heard the Christian message, you might know that when the Bible speaks of our works, it, it doesn't always speak of our works as, uh, positively. And maybe you've heard people say something like this. Other religions, they're all about working. Christianity isn't about works. It's about faith. And in a way, that, that, that's true. But I'd like to change that sentence slightly. As Christians, we believe our forgiveness, our salvation from sin is not based on our works. It's not based on our deeds. It's based purely on God's grace. But the Christian life, how we live now that we've been forgiven, that's all about works. It's about glorious, hard-fought, God-honoring good works. And the work God had to do to forgive us, now that's all complete. But now Jesus is saying there's still some work for you to do, church, and you need to get to work. The Apostle Paul explained it to the church in Ephesus this way. He says, God, being rich in mercy because of his great love that he loved us, even when you were dead, he made you alive with Christ. And he did it all to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards you. And he did this. It's not your own doing. It's a gift from God. It's not a result of your works. So no one can boast about it. No one can say, I earned my salvation. That is the gospel, that God from the foundations of the world made for a way for undeserving sinners to come back to him by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You didn't work to earn forgiveness. You just believe in the work Christ did for you. 
You were saved from sin by Christ. You were saved from yourself. You were saved by God. You were saved to intimate relationship to him. But you were saved for something. You were saved for a purpose. And that purpose is to do work, to do good work. Paul continues in Ephesians. He says, we're God's workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Church, you were bought at a high price. You were bought for a purpose. That purpose is to do good works. And Jesus is saying that as he sees it, that work is not finished. There's still sin and rebellion in our hearts that we don't hate enough yet. We're not finished fighting with it. He says, keep going. There's smugness. There's self-righteousness. There's bitterness in us that grieves the Holy Spirit of God with whom we were sealed. And he's saying, fight that. Resist that. Put that to death. You're not done killing that. There is beauty in this Bible that God wants us to see. That we're not done falling in love with the one who bought us and the one who calls us to walk with him. There, are, there is truth about God. There are heights of love and joy and glory that he wants to bring you to that you haven't reached yet. And you need to be stronger if you're going to reach it. And so he's saying... I've prepared all these things in advance for you. Go, wake up, walk in them, walk with me in them. Our Lord is saying, as long as there's blood beating through your heart and there's breath in your lungs, you can still fight to do good work. So how do we fight? And this is what Jesus says. He says to fight, to do good work. Now that we're awake, now that we understand we need to be strong to fight, We need to do three things. We need to remember, we need to rehearse, and we need to repent. So first, here you see in verse 3, he says, The church is called to remember, to bear in mind, to keep at the front of your mind what you've received and heard. And what did they receive and hear? Well, it's it's the gospel. It's that message that that I just said. Uh, Some time ago, they heard the information that I just gave, that when you were dead in sin, Christ died for you. They heard that simple gospel message and their hearts were touched and they believed what they heard. They received the free offer of forgiveness. Remember, the gospel is good news. It's news. It's news proclaimed. It's heralded by a messenger and it's received by an audience. This call to remember is a call for us to recall the riches of God's kindness toward us expressed in Jesus in his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. So first you remember the gospel, you remember God's kindness toward you, and then you rehearse it. And the way he says it here is is you keep it. You you live it out. You let the gospel shape your action. How do you do that? Well, first it takes effort. You you try really hard to treasure Christ. You, You expend effort in holding on to the truth of God's love so tightly you keep it so no one can snatch it away from you. Put more simply... And this is what the the catechism says. Uh, Keeping the gospel involves using the ordinary, simple means of grace that God has provided. Prayer, the word of God, the Bible, and the sacraments. Prayer, you pray by yourself and with others in the church. You, You gather with the church to enjoy the Lord's Supper, to be baptized and become a visible member in the body of Christ. That's part of the means that God's provided for you. You read the word of God and especially... It says, you listen to the word of God preached with the gathered church. It's not rocket science. There's not some secret prayer or magic formula. 
the way you keep it, the way you keep the gospel, is you just go down the old ancient paths that Christians have walked since the very beginning. In the words of Jeremiah 6.16, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads, look, and ask for the what? The ancient paths where the good way is. Walk in it and find rest for your souls. So the Lord says you remember, you keep it, you, you rehearse the truth, and then you repent. And we might add, although I don't want to add anything to God's word, but you repeat. You, you keep doing it. All of a Christian's life is about repentance, as Martin Luther said. It's not a one-time only activity. Repentance is turning from yourself and turning to God's word, letting it shape your new way of thinking, a new way of feeling, a new way of living. And, and honestly, I need to do this multiple times throughout the day. Pastor Tim Keller says this. The purpose of repentance is to repeatedly tap into the joy of our connection to Christ in order to weaken our need to do anything contrary to God's heart. To repeatedly tap into joy of being connected to Christ. So that the desire to do anything contrary to him, it, it just suddenly becomes so weak compared to the strength of your connection to him. This is hard work, but things that are good, things that are excellent, they deserve hard work. They deserve labor. So after giving his remedy to the dead church, Christ gives them and us just one chilling final warning. This is what he says. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. And this, even just to read that, is, is terrifying. The fact that this church has survived this long in their deadness and their rebellion is really just a testament to God's grace, to his patience. And he's saying, if you don't repent, he will come against them. What does that mean? For the God of the universe to be against you? I don't want to know. <laughs> the Bible is clear. Jesus came first as a lamb, and he's going to come next like a lion. And we don't know what time that will be. It only says it'll be soon. So he's saying into this church, be watchful, be aware. And I think he's, he's given them another warning here just to drive the point home because historically the city of Sardis was really famous for having a false sense of security. You know, at one time, the city, uh, the, uh, Sardis, ha had a big citadel, ha had a fortress, and it was up on these 1,500-foot uh, sh sheer cliffs. So in order to take the city, you would have to go up these cliffs, which were impossible to climb. So everyone in Sardis thought, we're the best city. We're invincible. Nobody could ever take over Sardis. There were these vertical rock faces, and they thought, we're safe. They thought they were safe. They thought they were so safe that they didn't bother to guard the steepest cliff face. And then in 549 B.C., the Persian army, led by Cyrus, sent a climber up one of those impossible-to-climb walls. And since no one was guarding it, he took the city. And then, if that wasn't dumb enough, a few hundred years later in 216 B.C., they thought, you know what? Cyrus did that. They're really good climbers in Persia. No one will ever climb up these cliffs again. We're safe. We're fine. We're, no worries. 
watchmen, stay home tonight. You're good. But sure enough, a group of 16 soldiers from Crete climbed up the cliff. And they walked in to the gates. And they opened the gates from the inside and they let their army in. And you're thinking, where were you, Sardis? Why weren't you watching? Why didn't you see? Why didn't you see after it happened once that it would happen again? And Jesus is saying, church at Sardis, church in Wilmington, you think you're safe. But the Bible's clear. Don't be deceived. Don't think you're secure if you're not secure. You do not, believe me, you do not want to represent yourself. You don't want to be your own counsel in God's court of judgment. Christ is the only name by which we can be saved. Have you repented? Have you believed? And I'll say this again at the end, but if you have business to, with, to do with God today, can you do it, please? I beg of you, for the love of your own soul. If you have something that you need to do with God, if you have some sin that's unconfessed, if you have forgiveness that you need to ask of someone else, would you please hear the words of Christ, turn from him and live. Today is the day of salvation. As one writer put it, tomorrow may be our dying day. Let today be our day of salvation. So finally, having given a rebuke and prescribed the only remedy, Christ is offering them a reward to them and to us, to all who would have ears to hear. With Sardis, he gives a promise to those who will overcome, just like with all the other churches. First, there's a promise to the few faithful, the small remnant within this church who hadn't pushed cruise control and just fallen asleep. This is what he says. Listen, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So along with whatever strength remained in the individual members of the church, there were still a couple people. There was this remnant, and maybe it was only two or three people, but they were really getting it for Jesus. They were trying to be faithful. They were working hard. And I think there's something important. There's a reason that Christ says you still have a few names here. He's using the same root word that he uses in the first verse where he says, I know your name. I know your reputation. And, and I, I think what he's saying is he's intentionally trying to contrast. Hey, I know you have a name, and on the outside you look great, but you're dead. You're the church of death. And then he's saying, here's these people. These people probably within the church that everyone looked at them, everyone in this crazy, wayward church, this dead church, looked at these few people and probably said, man, those people are killjoys. Man, those people, they're legalists. Those few couple people, they're the worst. Nobody, you, nobody wants them around. But God is saying, okay, everyone, your name is death. These people, their name is life. They're beautiful. He's trying to draw a contrast. He's trying to say, look at these people. See how they walk? Walk like them. And I think, <laughs> I just love this. I love this. He says they're worthy. They're worthy of bearing the name. Of Christian. Can you imagine what comfort this would bring if you were one of those few people? He's saying, My children, you've done well. I know it's been difficult. He's proud of them. He boasts of them. He promises them a reward that's only going to really make sense to people who love Christ. He says, When I come back, we're going to walk together. We're going to take our time. We're going to talk. 
We're going to have unrushed quality time with Jesus. And those who truly know the Lord know that the greatest reward he gives to his people is himself. The giver is far more precious than any gift that he could give. So after praising that precious, faithful few, Christ now promises a reward to the future faithful, to those who conquer, who have ears to hear. He says, you'll be clothed too, just like them. You'll be clothed thus in white garments. And this is a beautiful image. Just like them, you will be with me in white, pure clothing. And this image of clothing is really throughout the whole Bible. It's in the book of Revelation too. And and it means that It means forgiveness. It means holiness. It means your unholiness will be covered by God's holiness. One day your brokenness will be covered with beauty. That's the promise of God. It's the promise of the gospel. This is what it says in Isaiah. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. No matter what stain you've put on yourself, no matter what stain someone else has put on you by what they've done, Christ says, you'll be white as snow. As it says in the end of this book, behold, the Lamb of God is making all things brand new again. And if that's not enough, Jesus says, I'll never blot your name out of the book of life. This is the reward of real security. This is the comfort of knowing we have a place prepared for us in God's kingdom in the new heaven and the new earth. He's not going to revoke our citizenship. Jesus says, whoever comes to me in faith, I will never cast out. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. I will never leave you or forsake you. Your name is in the book. It's in permanent marker. Time and trouble, temptation, nothing can make it fade. Nothing can take it out. And finally, Jesus says, I will confess your name before my father and before his angels. Again, he says, I'm going to recognize your name. And and I'm really going to celebrate you. You're not going to be uh, a faithful in name only. I'm going to celebrate you before God Almighty in the heavenly host in the throne room of God. What will that be like? I've heard someone say that our name is. To you is the most beautiful word in any language. To hear your name spoken by by someone that loves you. To hear it spoken tenderly. It brings such comfort. Can you imagine what it would sound like to have your word, your name, on the lips of the fairest among 10,000? The source of all beauty and goodness and truth in the universe. That's what he's promising. I'll speak your name. I'll boast of your name before God. This is what's offered to us. If only we would follow him and not fall asleep. Jesus says, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. Life and death hang in the balance for them and for us. So let us pay close attention to the words of Christ. He who has an ear, let him hear. I don't think all is lost for the church in Sardis because God loved them enough to speak to them. And when God speaks, even to a dead church, his words have power to bring life. And when his word is preached, it has power even to make the dead live. 
So it was all throughout history. So it is with the church in Wilmington in 2015. If you have ears to hear, God will take what is dead in you and bring new life. Wake up, repent, and walk with him. Let's pray together. Father God, you took Ezekiel out to a valley of dry, dead bones. And you said, Son of man, can these bones live? Preach to them. Preach to the bones. And Lord, when, when, when he preached, the, 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 the bones grew flesh and they, and they came together. And, and a valley of death became a valley of life. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. Lord, that what is dead in them, Lord, would you speak to it and cause it to become alive? Lord, if there's the least bit of grace left in us, Lord, would you strengthen it? Would you fan it into flame? Lord, we ask that you would do this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.